Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Our guest this episode, German actress and improviser Isolde Fischer, a dynamic presence on stage and screen. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Roger Miller, an ode to the wild child, king of the road. Trailers for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no cigarettes Ah, but two hours of pushing broom buys an eight, a 12-fold bedroom I'm a man of means by no means King of the road I first remember hearing country music crossover star Roger Miller in about 1964 or 65, and King of the Road was probably the first song I heard. Apparently, Miller wrote it after seeing a road sign in Chicago that said, Trailers for sale or rent, and soon afterwards meeting a hobo at the Boise, Idaho airport. Those twin inspirations in a few months led to the biggest hit of Roger Miller's career, King of the Road. A few months was a long time to germinate a song for Roger Miller, who normally needed just a little spark of inspiration, and he was off. Sit high, getting ideas Ain't nothing but a fool to live like this Out all night in the running wild Woman sitting home with a month old child Dang me, dang me They ought to take a rope and hang me High from the highest Miller supposedly wrote Dang Me in under five minutes after signing with the up-and-coming label Smash Records. Never much of a businessman, Roger asked the label for $1,600 in cash in exchange for recording 16 sides. What a deal for Smash Records. Among the hits that came out of that deal were Dang Me and Chug-A-Lug. Chug a look, chug a look. Make you want to holler, hidey ho. Burn your tummy, don't you know? Chug a look, chug a look. Grape wine in a mason jar. Homemade and brought to school by a friend of mine in after class. Me and him and this other fool decided we'll drink up what's left. Chug a look, so I held myself. First time for everything. Roger Miller was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1936, the depths of the Great Depression. His mom, LaDine, died of spinal meningitis when little Roger was just a year old, and he and his two siblings were farmed out to his aunt and uncle on a farm in Eric, Oklahoma. While young, Miller did all kinds of farm work, from picking cotton to plowing and shoveling chicken shit. He said later his family was dirt poor and did not even own a telephone until 1951. His cousin's husband was future country star Sheb Woolley, who taught Miller his first guitar chords and bought him a fiddle. Out of desperation to write songs, Roger stole a guitar at 17. However, he turned himself in the very next day and, given a choice, joined the Army in order to avoid jail. As Miller said later, my education was Korea, Clash of 52. I hear tell you're doing well, good things have come to you. I wish I had your happiness, and you had to do, I could 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 do. They tell me. 
When he got out, he headed for Nashville and began writing songs and connecting with various country singers of the 1950s, including Chet Atkins, George Jones, Ernest Tubb, Ray Price, Johnny Paycheck, and Homer and Jethro. Roger even played fiddle for Minnie Pearl for a few tours. All those connections eventually paid off as people started recording Roger's songs and recognizing his talent. And then came that song about a man of means by no means. King of the road, I know every inch and every train. All their children, all of their names, and every handout in every town. Every locked, it ain't locked when no one's around, I sing. This song came out in late 1964, early 65, and stormed the charts, becoming number one on country and adult contemporary, as well as in the UK. Miller suddenly had money and success, and all those goofy songs came gushing out. In addition to writing wonderfully wacky lyrics, Miller also excelled in musically odd percussive ditties, almost impossible to describe. Basically, they are the kind of sounds a semi-drunk hillbilly with a guitar having a good time around a campfire would make. And we mean that as a compliment. Roger toured all over North America and Europe and fell in love with England, where he was very popular from the first, but especially after England Swings. England swings like a pendulum do Bobby's on bicycles two by two Westminster Abbey, the Tower of Big Ben The rosy red cheeks of the little children Miller had a few TV shows in the middle-late 1960s, recorded his own and other artists' covers, and then sort of faded away for a while. He resurfaced in the 1980s when he got an offer to write a Broadway score for a musical based on Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The musical was called Big River. Some tree somewhere Maybe fishing Or maybe someplace sitting Just wishing I was fishing Oh, I Huckleberry me this turned out to be a bit of a renaissance for Roger Miller, as according to Wikipedia, Big River received glowing reviews, earning seven Tony Awards, including Best Score for Roger Miller. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd Roller skating a buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. But you can be happy if you mind to. You can't take a shower. Miller was married three times and fathered eight children. He was a lifelong cigarette smoker, and during one television interview, he explained that he composed his songs from bits and pieces of ideas he wrote on little scraps of paper. He was asked what he did with those papers, and he responded, I smoke them. Miller died of lung and throat cancer in 1992 at the age of 56. When trying to explain his own style, Miller remarked that he, quote, tried to do things like other artists, but it always came out different. So he got frustrated until realizing, I'm the only one that knows what I'm thinking. He commented that the favorite song that he wrote was, You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. It's silly and fun, just like that wild child that wrote it. But you can be happy if you've mind to. You can't drive around with a tiger in your car. You can't drive around with a tiger in your car. You can't drive around with a tiger in your car. But you can be happy if you've mind to. All you gotta do is put your mind to it. Knuckle down, buckle down, do it, do it, do it. Well, you can't roller skate in the buffalo herd. Roller skate in the buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in the buffalo herd. But you can be happy if you've a mind to. You can't go fishing in a watermelon patch. You can't go fishing in a watermelon patch. You can't go fishing in a watermelon patch. But you can be happy if you've a mind to. You can't roller skate in the buffalo herd. You can't roller skate in the buffalo herd. Denis Diderot, 
Enlightenment hero, bon vivant, mensch. When I was a history student at UC Berkeley, I spent a lot of time in the library, studying and writing papers. First, it was at Moffat Undergraduate Library. Then I got stack privileges at Bancroft Library, where there are hundreds of thousands of volumes. I was a history major and dreamed of going back in time. To visit famous civilizations and hang out with illustrious people. Sometimes I've dreamed of being in historical places like ancient Athens or Rome, or Paris, France, in the days leading up to the French Revolution. Paris in the time of the Enlightenment seemed an especially grand place, for the siècle des Lumières, as they say in French, was always portrayed as a time of historical ferment, a place where societal chips were thrown up in the air and landed in completely different places. It followed in the wake of the scientific revolution, where reason had overwhelmed superstition, and increasingly the European population was becoming more literate and educated. There was a yearning for liberty, a questioning of religious orthodoxy. Great thinkers were challenging the status quo. Men like Rousseau, Voltaire, Adam Smith, and Benjamin Franklin were shaking up the political establishment. (laughs) And great minds were pushing a new attitude, captured by the phrase, sapere aude, dare to know. In contrast to the age of absolutism which preceded it, society and culture of the Enlightenment witnessed the rise of the public sphere and an explosion of print culture. Where before, aristocrats, royalty, and the church hierarchy had made all decisions. I wonder what the poor people are doing. (laughs) And basically dictated what was discussed in the public domain. Over the course of the 18th century, an expanding bourgeoisie began to invade the public sphere. Independent of the state, increasingly literate, and considering vast areas of life open to criticism. The fuck? (laughs) Yeah, me. It really sucks. (laughs) This sucks more than anything that has ever sucked before. Up to this point, according to historian Rolf Engelsing, reading was fairly parochial. People tended to own a small number of books and read them repeatedly. After about 1750, people began reading extensively, finding as many books as they could and sharing them. People were increasingly literate, and that included women. You've come a long way, baby, to get where you got to today. And then there was the expanding coffeehouse culture. Cafes attracted a diverse set of people, including not only aristocrats, but increasingly a majority of the bourgeoisie, and even the lower class. This open house of discourse frightened the upper classes, one of whom railed against the coffee houses. Quote, which allowed promiscuous association among people from different rungs of the social ladder, from the artisan to the aristocrat, and was therefore compared to Noah's Ark, receiving all types of animals, both clean and unclean. Into this provocative new world of café society, sometime in the 1740s, came Denis Diderot, a ne'er-do-well son of a fairly wealthy provincial bourgeois family, who had angered his father by skipping out on a law apprenticeship. Being a lawyer is the worst. Even worse, Diderot, apparently a natural raconteur and armchair philosopher, spent way too much time in coffee houses. No more caffeine for you. Diderot was recognized as amiable and lovable, befriending legions of fellow coffee addicts. Even the choleric Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whom he met playing chess, and with whom he had a long friendship. As a recent New Yorker article says, quote, Diderot was an inspired and lovable amateur, with an opinion on every subject and an appetite for every occasion. What do you got? One biographer, Robert Zaretsky, calls him a mensch, but a very French mensch, ambitious, ironic, and obsessed with sex to a hair-raising degree. That's what she said! <laughs> Michael! Michael! <laughs> Michael, please. <laughs> 
while gentle and loving in his many and varied amorous connections. Where are you, my little gumbo of chicken? Your French fried shrimp is sizzling for you. From an early age, he loved women, and women loved him back. I'll just come up sometimes, see me. His marriage to, of all people, an oddly well-born working laundress named Toinette was not a success. She would have street brawls with his mistresses. He had what we call charm. The ability to present intelligence as though it were identical with amiability. Diderot sounds immensely colorful, but even in cafe society of pre-revolutionary France, one couldn't just drink coffee and make a living, especially after being disinherited by an angry father. Diderot became an essayist on a variety of subjects, a translator, and an on-again, off-again writer of political pamphlets, philosophical dialogues, and even pornographic books. <laughs> All while carrying on vigorous romantic liaisons with a variety of partners. He sounds like a mix of Cyrano de Bergerac and Pepe Le Pew. However, at a certain point, there was that little problem of how to pay the rent. Rent! It's too damn high! By the late 1740s, Diderot was in a financially tight spot and needed to raise money on short notice. He became a father through his wife... <laughs> His mistress, Madame de Puisseau, was making financial demands on him. At this time, Diderot had boasted to Madame de Puisseau that writing a novel was a simple task, whereupon she challenged him to write one. In response, Diderot wrote the novel Les Bijoux Indiscrets, or The Indiscreet Jewels, which the New Yorker called a sort of dangerous liaisons of lingerie. Le Bijou tells of a sultan who acquires a magic ring that empowers, even compels vaginas, a.k.a. bijou or jewels, to tell their true histories from within women's underwear whenever the ring is pointed at them. In all, the ring is pointed at 30 different women in the book, usually at a dinner or a social meeting, with the sultan typically being visible to the woman. However, since the ring has the additional trick of making its owner invisible when required, a few of the sexual experiences recounted are through direct observation with the sultan making himself invisible and placing himself in the unsuspecting woman's boudoir. Saucy stuff, especially for the time. Some have seen Diderot's work as almost proto-feminist, with a woman's sexual point of view allowed to express itself openly, unashamed of erotic appetite. As the New Yorker article tells us, Diderot would have wanted it to be read in this way. He was in favor of pleasure, and though famous as a libertine, he urged his lovers to seek orgasmic satisfaction, to recognize that their pleasure was as much a pleasure to him as his own. I'll have what she's having. In a letter, he urged one of his mistresses, Sophie Voland, to own her pleasure. As we might say now, since the face of a man who is transported by love and pleasure is so beautiful to see, and since you can control when you want to have this tender and gratifying picture in front of you, why do you deny yourself this same pleasure? He was also in favor of treating homosexuality as a normal product of human physiology. Nothing that exists can be against nature or outside nature, he wrote of same-sex love. So, after the success of Les Bijoux, it seems that Diderot was out of the woods in terms of financial distress. Yet his biggest challenge, and the work that would make his name, was yet to come. His career as a polemicist, pornographer, and master of the café clutch was still not exactly the resume one would expect of an encyclopedia editor. Yet that was the job he was asked to consider in the late 1740s. Originally, the idea would be to update an older version of an English encyclopedia, but Diderot jumped on it. He would spend most of the next two-plus decades writing and editing a couple dozen volumes, 72,000 articles, 3,000 illustrations, and building a vast storehouse of knowledge that would come to define the Enlightenment. Denis Diderot would help write, edit, and build the monumentally definitive book of this era, Le Encyclopédie. 
From the outset, Diderot conceived of the project in grand fashion, for he thought that comprehensive knowledge would give the power to change men's common way of thinking. The work would combine advanced scholarship with information on common trades. Diderot worked to display the abundance of knowledge within all subject areas, and the work would be organized differently, no longer adhering to the great chain of being with precedence given to the church or aristocracy. The encyclopedia would be organized alphabetically with innovative renvois, or cross-referencing included, allowing one subject of study to lead you to another in surprising ways. At any time, Diderot explained, grammar can refer us to dialectics, dialectics to metaphysics, metaphysics to theology, theology to jurisprudence, etc. And this massive work was arranged according to the Tree of Knowledge, reflecting a marked division between the arts and the sciences. The desanctifying of religion was shown in the tree's design, where theology was off on a peripheral branch, with black magic as a close neighbor. This markedly secularizing book came to represent the transmission of knowledge and scientific education to a vastly expanding audience. And so it was mired in controversy from the beginning. The project was suspended by the courts numerous times, first in 1752. Just as the second volume was completed, accusations surfaced regarding seditious content, especially around religion and natural law. Diderot was arrested, and his house searched for manuscripts and articles. Over the course of the next 20 years, Diderot was sporadically harassed, lost influential friends, and was bullied by both the government and the church. Diderot continued to work, in the end writing over 7,000 articles himself, spending his days at workshops mastering manufacturing processes and nights writing what he had learned during the day. In the end, Diderot cobbled together a vast work that took for granted religious tolerance, freedom of thought, and the value of science and industry. It espoused the notion that the main concern of a nation's government ought to be the welfare of its common people. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. L'Encyclopédie turns out to be a manifesto for freedom and modernity. So let us salute Denis Diderot, a colossus of the coffee house, a rigorous intellect to be sure, but also an 18th century mensch, someone you could share a cup of coffee with, have a philosophical gab fest, and maybe even dabble in a bit of gossip over love and sex. In the end, let's recognize that the loosening of societal constraints that powered the Enlightenment was partly driven by regular people demanding to be heard, recognizing the power of a nice chat over a cup of coffee and the empowerment that comes from a good heart-to-heart. Let's raise a cup of French roast to the man who mused over the little things that make us happy. Those people who are buried next to each other are perhaps not as crazy as one might think. Their ashes might press and mix together and unite. What do I know? Maybe they haven't lost all feeling or all the memories of their first state. Perhaps there is a flicker of heat that they both enjoy in their own way at the bottom of the cold urn that holds them. Oh, my Sophie, I could touch you, feel you, love you, look for you, unite myself with you and combine myself with you when we are no longer here. Allow me this fantasy. Au revoir et merci bien, Denis Diderot. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Hello, I am here with Isolde Fischer, my longtime friend who is, Isolde is an actress in uh, Germany. She is uh, 
in Mannheim in Germany. She went to the University at Heidelberg, and I have known Isolde since 1995, I think, uh, or 95 or 96 at the latest. We met in a workshop. I came to Heidelberg and was engaged by her theater group, um, Drama Light. And Drama Light is an improv group, an impro group for a long time here in uh, Germany. When did Drama Light start? I think it was uh, 27 years ago when it was founded. But yeah, from this time on, I mean, in Germany, we have we we are one of the first. Uh, you, you've been involved since the beginning, right? Oh, close, close. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. I'm so not you... one of the founders, but I I'm the second generation. Right. Ah, yeah. Okay, that's what that's what I recall. <laughs> I recall you when I met you. I think you were about 23. Yeah, 22 is when you. You were uh, a fresh-faced, a fresh-faced youth, a a sassy girl, and I thought, my goodness, who is this young woman? (laughs) Actually, I remember when I first met you, um, I had been uh, told to come to uh, Mannheim, and you would meet me. And a friend of ours, a mutual friend uh, from Emscherblut, which is another group up in Dortmund, Detlef Schmidt, told me, um, "Oh, you'll notice her. She's very tall." And uh, you said, "I'll be wearing." uh, I said, "I'd be wearing." wearing a red cap. Yeah. So as I recall. So I took my cap off to trick you and I got off the train and I saw this uh, tall blonde woman and I said I bet you that's these oldest. So I snuck up behind you. And that was our first <laughs> meeting as I recall. <laughs> so, yeah. So you were the youngest of five yes. girls, right? And um so at, did you have a lot of time to be at home and dream and uh, make up fantasies? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, completely. I'm still actually I have to admit, I'm still a daydreamer. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah, a little bit. Uh, so for me, this is a really natural thing. And then if I, uh, after some years, I found out, oh, some people don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> I right. always imagine, like I uh, created a, a hero figure because there was this Robin Hood, and it he was a male. But I wanted it that really my hero is a woman so I created a robber hood and I always said to my friend he was a boy and I said always to Stefan um, it's not Robin Hood it's robber hood I swear it <laughs> so what did robber hood look like? <laughs> um, quite similar to Robin Hood but uh-huh. it was a woman and not a man did, and this fit better to my uh, fantasy <laughs> did robber hood also steal from the rich and give Absolutely. to the poor? And and I think sometimes I still work with that. But I ask leaders from big companies, what was your hero in your childhood? Because this tells a lot about your values, what you are fighting for in life. What, yeah, what are the values you are really um, committed to? So you had your mom and dad were uh, were they both uh, from Swabia? Yes, both mm-hmm. really original Swabians, and mm-hmm. um, I think always uh, like my parents. My mother she's now over eighty years old, and my my dad is not uh, alive, alive anymore. But he passed away uh, ten years ago. But um, both of them grew up during the Second World War. And for me, because I'm occupied a lot with history and and, and the story of our country, and I still say this country is traumatized by this because both of them grew up as as kids during the the war. (laughs) And after that, nobody talked about uh, trauma, therapy, or uh, there were no consultants to help them. They had to build up the country again. So it's up to our generation really to to solve these traumas, because this society is still traumatized, I think so. We should give a little background. Um, As I understand it, your father was drafted into the army at at 16 years old, old. and he was sent to the Russian front. And um, sometime at that, during that period, he was captured by the Russians, and he spent some years in a Russian POW camp before he was allowed to come back to West Germany, and amazingly, he survived this ordeal and then came back. And do you know how long, what time he came back to West Germany then, at that time? I I think it was uh, 49. Four years after the war then. So, but but really, this is a nice story from my father, because they... (laughs) <laughs> there was no chance to come out from this prison, uh, war prison. So he realized that one of 
the other prisoners had um, sickness. Mm -hmm. And so he thought, okay, if I have the same, they push me out because <laughs> this sickness is really not good if it stay in, the, in this prison because they still had to work. Mm -hmm. So he said, give me your spoon <laughs> during the meal. Yeah. And he ate from the, the, the spoon and then he knew, now I have it too. But um, so he came home close to, to be dead and really had yeah to he looked like a, a ghost my yeah. grandmother always said if if my dad came home she thought oh my god this is his ghost yeah and when he uh, he built himself up and then soon after he much when he was healthy again did he yeah. meet your mother then yeah. he, so this is Helga Fisher yeah, your Helga. papa yeah. and Irena Fisher yeah. your your mom yeah and so they met each other then a couple yeah. years later after he got home yeah Yeah. And then they proceeded to have five girls. Yes, and they, they were really always, the whole time they worked for their little house and to, just to feed the five girls. <laughs> yeah, I should say, and I, I, I mean this as a compliment, that the Schwabians are famous for being frugal. They're sort of, in, in terms of uh, reputation, they're sort of the Scotsman of Germany. <laughs> yes. And, and, and that's a reputation I have. I mean nothing against Scotland when I say that. But um, I understand that Helga, your papa, was famous for saving things. Absolutely. Okay, maybe you could tell a little story about that. Oh, so many stories. <laughs> Which one you want to hear? About the <laughs> stuff he kept downstairs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. He had... Uh, the whole basement in the uh, really he always if he has seen oh there's cheap butter in the supermarket he bought 200 pieces and then he put it all in the fridge and really he was sometimes and really and, and I couldn't understand this as a kid much better than I was an adult he couldn't throw away any food because he really knows what hunger feels <laughs> I don't know this because I grew up here in peace and freedom and so I don't really don't know it i have like oh i'm a little bit hungry but we really never had all together really be hungry about something or mm -hmm. something like really i'm hungry for something um so he always make made sure that there was so much food in our house but he couldn't show anything away so isolda i know that you were always a fairly political person as a young woman and uh, from childhood on. And I know by the time you went to university at Heidelberg, you were very involved with the SPD, the Social Democratic Party here in, in Germany. How did it all start, maybe as a teenager? One of the keys why I started to be really in this political activism was uh, our history. Because I, if I found out what all happened, what Hitler did, what the Nazis did, I felt that really so much uh, in the, the, the shocked thing. And I realized, because I had an aunt, Freya, and my aunt, she was still a Nazi. Oh. And sometimes she said always like this, it was not all bad under Hitler. Hitler did a lot of good things. We would need a little Hitler. And I hated her that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in, in a lot of family, these persons exist. So I always really had such big discussion with her. And I was so emotionally and angry with her and so I always had a feeling like I have to do something and and I mean this has to be really me yeah the Nazis should <laughs> to hell we have to send him to the moon and they should shut up with this shit and all of this and so I really started to do um, the anti-fascism work a lot related to the SPD work during the young, uh, f the organization for the young SPD people. And um, also the Green Party was really a big step for Germany because suddenly the environment, the nature, everything was really, we have to save this. And I really could commit to this quite easy because I said, oh yeah, that's really true. So in, in my, my father was really conservative and he, he always discussed with me. He always said, oh, don't be such a rebellion and, and be <laughs> really, you have to think more that the economy is, is good because if we don't have money, then we can't save the nature and everything. 
So a little bit this is right as well. But um, on my father and me, we fight it a lot in politics things. Oh my God. Uh, but on one point, we, we agreed and we both were on one side because it was to save um, energy energy, mm-hmm. and to, to, <laughs> to, to pull down the heat. And, and really, my father, <laughs> really, only his only interest was to save money. For me, was it to save nature? But we did the same. And my mother always says, I hate it if it's cold in the house and why you always put down. And I said, it's for the nature. My father, yes, she's right. And the money. (laughs) At the age of 19 or so, you then decided to go off and study and you went to the University of Heidelberg, the very famous University of Heidelberg, which has been around since the 13th or 14th century. Is that correct? While you were at the University of Heidelberg, you had been there a few years, you suddenly came upon something new. You discovered Impro Theater, Impro Theater. And please tell us about your first times as an improviser, what it was like. My my, my first time was actually my my husband. He's now my husband. (laughs) During this time, we just knew each other from the university. He said, do you know there's Impro Theater, there's a theater workshop. Are you interested to participate? And I said, huh? And also my other colleague, Sabine Strober. And I said, yeah, let's do this together. And we did this. And I never have seen any improv show because it was not really popular in Germany during this time. And I liked it to play and to perform. And I liked the people. And I was interested at a guy, uh, Stefan. And so I th- decided to be a, a member of this group. And one of the teachers, Arnim Huber, he said, wow, I can see we have a clown talent. And he asked me if I would like to be sometimes um, his partner, his comedy partner on stage. And as a clown character, you have to improvise as well. And I thought, wow, great. And I never forget our first improv show we did. It was in front of 20 people. Mm -hmm. Really a little stage. And afterwards, they gave us some money that we performed there. And I was so surprised. I thought, they give me money? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I had a joy. I had a fun. I, I was just happy that I'm allowed to do it. And they gave me money for that. And um, Stefan and me, we decided after the performance from this money, we go in a restaurant. I mean, we have been students. For us, we really had less money. But for us, we felt like king king and queen so we went out into a fish restaurant and put all the money on the table and ate a great meal and then the money was gone and we felt really incredible (laughs) so you you saw quickly the power of show business to give you a a little bit more in life so (laughs) so initially i am assuming that you didn't make much money but you did it mostly for fun yeah so in the early days drama light was mostly students except for a few older people arnhem was a bit older right so maybe describe the you had sabina strobach you mentioned and your sometimes eventual husband stefan (laughs) hillebrand arnhem huber who were some of the other people uh, that were involved back then Oh, who was still in, uh, Frank Zimmermann, Alfred Curry, um, yeah, the, and some others around. I mean, um, the, the goal from the group was not clear. Mm-hmm. Some people, mostly the professional art performance artists, they wanted to bring improv theater in a professional level. And others just made it, they said, oh, I only want to have fun. Some performances, but time by time. And also, and this was a whole process over, I think, five years. And as we were finished with our... Uh, university degree, Sabine, Stefan and me. Um, I had another phone call with my, my parents and I said, do you know what? I tried to live from art. And my dad was, what? <laughs> <laughs> For him it was, I can't believe that. You started, you have a degree, you are one of the best. He hoped that I find a job and I will earn money, or I should marry a rich man. This was another plan for me. Or, but but that I became an artist, it was for him like, my heart yeah. breaks down. I can understand this, because for him, he, what he really wanted, that all of his girls, yeah, 
would have an income, would be safe and are happy, and he can pass away. This was his goal. And if I said, told him I want to live as an artist, he was like. <laughs> Light, which was kind of a cool name. It's like Cola Light, Drama Light. They were sort of recognizing that this isn't real theater. This is sort of a watered-down version, impro theater. Yeah. They were mocking themselves, but they were a very talented group, and they had you guys had a lot of staying power. And for those first years, you were picking up gigs and performing more often. And so, what were the first years like? Uh, they'll say the next the, once you decided to. Become an, artist. become an artist. I mean, I think it has to do that uh, improv theater became more and more popular, more and more audience members joined the shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the beginning, I sometimes 12 members in the audience and 10 of them I knew. They yeah. <laughs> so told me, oh, we, 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 we come again. Oh, yeah, I promise. <laughs> said, you have to come to our improv show. Yeah. But now, I mean, our theater since many years really booked out and I'm happy and thankful for that. But I, we also realized that improv theater, it's a continue, con- continuous uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Development, you, right. You development, mm-hmm. movement. You Just every show is really special. We developed that much our skills, our variation about it. It's not only funny games on stage. I mean, at the beginning, it was a lot of these games. But then with teachers like you or from from the US or Canada, Mm -hmm. a lot of other ideas about improvisation theater came into. And the Germans are more related to the classic theater. Mm -hmm. So we really put put, um, real... Yeah, real theater and yeah. stuff inside the import things. Yeah, Germany has a, a variety of traditions. Not only is there a link with Commedia dell'arte and yeah. clown theater, there is also a, a long time established great theater from the 18th and 19th century. Uh, Schiller, Goethe, and a variety of other great writers who sort of, they also resurrected Shakespeare in Germany at that particular time, translated all of Shakespeare's works. So that's a whole other thing. And then, of course, there was the influence of Bertolt Brecht in political theater. And that was a whole other tradition. So in a lot of ways, putting improvisation on top of all that, you had a hugely rich tradition to draw from. And it was also nice, uh, like one of my politician friends, he was a candidate for the Bundestag. He engaged us for his ca- campaign oh. and we made uh, Improcida as a kind of, we really want to, 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 to bring the people to, to go to the vote. Mm-hmm. We said, only if you participate, we can make something out of it. And improv theater is exactly this. Just give us successions, be really in the moment with us, and then we can make something out of it. If you stay away, if you don't share, if you don't say anything about anything, <laughs> then nothing going to happen. You yourself became a coach. And um, you and other Drama Light members, uh, Sabina and Stefan and a few others, have done a fair amount of coaching also. Now, one of the things I've always enjoyed about your coaching was your work on emphasizing relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I have learned so much from you about improvising relationships and how, how key relationships are to making good scenes and to making good stories. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's important to you as an improv coach, impro coach, and also some maybe some anecdotes, some stories. <laughs> okay. What I really love about the story is, as we started to know each other, you have been the teacher, the experienced one. And then after all these years, you are big enough that you can learn from, from me. I mean, this this means a lot to me, and I think this tells a lot about people. And I try always to take this. You, you always have something to learn. It's not that I'm now the old, experienced ones that I teach the young, unknown. <laughs> yeah, this is the one side. But on the other side, always, and if I do a coaching on my uh, with groups or with uh, single persons, I always say, I learn as well something from you. And, uh, yeah, this is more a mindset. Mm-hmm. You teach and you learn, and it's, it's a both way. You, you always have to be open for both ways, that you give and that you share. 
take and take and give <laughs> or yeah, yeah, give and yeah, take give, yeah. give and take mm -hmm. I don't, yeah mm -hmm. I think this is really important for me that I always try I think I've learned from you and so many other great teachers Tracy Burns is a great teacher as well really for me a cool role model as a woman who is a really a great at stage and as a teacher and I learned from a lot of people and I always said what what is really the key why I love to learn from them why I was open why I trusted them and there is for me a core it's really like The first thing was always I feel appreciated, like I was. And nobody told me I have to change. It's more like I make you an offer, how you can develop. It's Everything is fine with you, exactly how, how you are at this state. And I always say this to my students. Everything is fine, perfect, you are doing well. It's good enough. And what I can do is I open some doors I have to offer, and you have to decide through which door you want to work through. So, Isolde, <clears throat> in about 2000, in the year 2000, you got a film role. Um, your husband, Stefan Hillebrand, who's also in Drama Light, he uh, was working with one of his comrades from film school, Oliver Paulus, who's from Switzerland, and uh, they were working on some films, and you got a role in one that was built around you as a character. It was called Die Wurstverkäuferin, which means the uh, sausage sales girl. <laughs> Yes. Which is, I find, is a wonderful title. Yeah. And you had the role of this young uh, young woman who works in a uh, butcher shop. Butcher shop. And um, you worked, it was a, maybe a half hour film. How did you guys decide to do this film? And then how did it develop? And I know you used improvisation. In it, so yeah. maybe you could talk a little about that too. They asked me, would you like to make a short movie with us? Just one week. And we, we, we try something out that we can travel to um, Yugoslavia. And I, what is now Croatia and Serbia. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, okay, okay, okay. And then it started like they looked for a sound, somebody from the sound. And they phoned a friend and said, can you make a, a little hangout that we are looking for a sound man at a film school, maybe a young student who can make the sound. And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he did it, and then he phoned uh, Stefan and Oliver and said, I didn't know any title of the film, so I called it The Sausage Sailed Women. And then Stefan said, what for a great title. Okay, we overtake this idea. Because he's an improviser, he thought, great idea, we pick it, we grab this up. What a wonderful suggestion. Yeah, mm -hmm. what a wonderful suggestion. Yeah, and then they, they looked out for a butcher shop. Shop, mm -hmm. yeah. and then they found here in Mannheim one and asked, "Can we make some some film shots there?" And then we started to do it, and during the process, and yeah, because we had no script, we had no story, so we improvised, mm -hmm. and no one from us was really in this mood like this could be a successful thing. We loved the work, we did it, we rocked it, and afterwards we thought, oh, great. And But this prize won a lot of other awards. <laughs> yeah, this film won a lot of prizes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. prizes and awards mm -hmm. and some money. And this guy said, oh, now we put this money to make another movie. Because if you are a young filmmaker, you nobody gives you any money. Because everybody says, no, 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 no. Where are your references? You say, yeah, but I started to be a film director, so I don't have any. So you never get a chance to, to have this much money to produce a film. And Oliver and Stefan says, said both, well... We now we just do our work. We wanted to make some movies, and those we started to make when the richtige kommt, when the mm -hmm. right one comes along. Yeah, this was a film that came out in about 2003, yeah. and so this ended up being a full length one. This is yeah. about an hour and a half, is that yeah. correct? Yeah, correct? And um, this film, Isolde played a uh, 
uh, a young woman who's a maid, a Putzfrau, she's a, a maid at a hotel, as I recall, right? No, it was more building, building, in a building complex. Okay. She works in a building complex, and she, her name is Paula Hartnagel, I think, yeah? yeah. And uh, Paula is a, a working class girl, and she doesn't have a very good romantic life. But they follow her as she meets a, a guy who's a security guard yeah. at, the, at the building, who's a Turkish guy. <laughs> well, I mean, if you make an improvised movie, it really started at the building. Yeah. So they thought this building in Mannheim is really quite interesting because it's a whole complex built in the 80s, but now it's really empty and no, only some offices are there. Or it's, it's the atmosphere there. It's interesting because it looks like. He could really be a busy life, but nobody is there. Though they used this to start with the movie, and they found out, oh, they are cleaning persons. So my character, I made a decision, is a cleaning person. And then they thought, okay, she should meet someone. And we realized that the security guards are making breaks with the cleaning women. And so they looked out for a Turkish guy as a security guard. And they asked one of the youngers from Stefan's class, Go, Chan. They asked him, would you like to be a part, to have a part in our movie? He said, yes. And then we made some shots and then he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't do this any longer because I'm invited to a wedding in Adana. It's really... Adana is a town in Turkey. Turkey, mm-hmm. close to the Iraq border. Yeah. And then Stefan and Oliver said, well, there's no problem, we come with you. And then they really developed the story that Paula Hartnagel followed her dreams and she really uh, travels to Turkey to meet him or to look if this is really the right man in her life. You know, as as a viewer of the yeah. film, one of the things, I think it's one of the most bittersweet little movies I've ever seen, because Paula is full of dreams about the romance. She follows, what's his character's name? Mustafa. Mustafa. She follows, uh, Mustafa has gone away. So yeah. Paula is lonely for him at the at the building. So she goes to Turkey to try to find him. When she arrives in Adana, she finds his land and he's already married to a Turkish woman and he has a family. <laughs> so she arrives there and all her dreams are gone. And yet the film still ends on kind of an upbeat note because Paula has decided to get on with her life. <laughs> and now she's finally had a romance. Yeah. And it, it's a really sweet little movie. Yeah. And you guys improvised the whole film then. Yeah. Exactly. And that one also won some awards too, right? Yeah. At film festivals. Yes. Oh, yeah. We, I, I think that the movie has been shown in over 70 different kind mm-hmm. of countries. Yeah. And have won uh, several kind of awards for, for best um, uh, directors. And screenplay, screenplay and so forth. <laughs> guys continued uh, working on films, a variety of them. Then comes one, um, Wir werden uns wiedersehen, um, uh, We'll Meet Again, I think, or something in English. Yeah. And that's, once again, I'm fascinated by how they work. In the next interview, when I have a chance to talk to Stefan, we'll find a little bit more yeah. about how he works. But in this one, it takes place in an old age home, what mm-hmm. the Germans call a Pflegeheim. Yeah. And uh, caring for old people. Tell us a little bit about your role in that one. In that one, um, I think I am the director of this old people home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, well, just just come back to the Paula Hardnagel character a little bit. Because, for me, this was really a great possibility to to show up uh, uh, my actor's work as well. So I wanted to ask you about yeah. two more of your film yeah. roles um, in the last years. You worked in a film in Switzerland, which is a very interesting film called Vielen Dank für Nix. That also played at the Mendocino Film Festival. And, uh, Keep most... on Rolling is the English title. Keep on Rolling? Yeah, that's right, because it has to do with wheelchairs yes, and stuff. I... Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Vielen Dank für Nix, and then we can go into a most recent role, too. Yeah. 
So what is really special about Oliver's and Stefan's work that they always work at original place locations. Like an old people home, we had this already mentioned. And for uh, Keep on Whirling, it was um, a, a home in, in Südtirol in Italy, which is for people with special needs. Like they are handicapped in different kind of ways. And this is the whole story. And they put professional actors together with impression with people who are live which are living there. Mm-hmm. And they have to perform with each other. And this is really amazing. I performed with that big variation of people like with Turkish people with old people with um, handicapped people with people from different ages with different kind of social backgrounds it's really interesting and if you improvise with them you always have to pick up what they offer and you realize I mean these directors are really experienced with that work they they always create a safe uh, safe uh, space uh, mm-hmm. The and they're at the same time they're always challenging themselves yeah. and challenging the yeah, actors yeah. yes mm-hmm. but they have that big trust in you and they can give you a lot of appreci- appreciation what you offer and so um, as an actress you are really big we have a big possibility a lot of possibilities to to, to give your ideas into it and to be a part of the creation process a creative process they don't say okay just say this or this is your line this is your rule no you can offer something and say oh a little bit of this or sometimes they ask you have you an idea Mm -hmm. uh, what this character like a character could be like level up your life they ask me that's the most recent film that's just come out in the last year Mm -hmm. yeah go ahead yeah, German premiere was two two weeks ago. So for for them was more like really, what would you like to play? And I said, well, some someone who is addicted from alcohol, but you and you, you like this person, <laughs> and because for me it's most in, interesting if if I perform that people love the character, although it's not clean, it's not a Hollywood character like beautiful and perfect, it's. They're really a little bit oof, rough, yeah. in, a, in a way rude, of, mm-hmm. of, of, would you express that? Rough, rough around the edges might yeah. be a good English word for that. Yes, they're a little bit, oh, sometimes you think, oh my God, what the hell is she doing? Or like the last uh, character was uh, Ursula, she is uh, addicted from alcohol. And on the other hand, you always, yeah... Um, what I want to do that people really fall in love with this character, that they love them, that they realize these are not worse people. Or maybe they have really a lot of struggles in their life, but on the other side, they have something to, to, to give. I think now in my age, it's more about that I realize how rich my life is. I mean, I work in films, in public stage, I'm teaching classes, I work with kids, I work with managers, I work with that many people, really a a huge variation of themes. My life is really rich (laughs) and and I'm thankful for that because now I'm in the age that I said, okay, this is not uh, for certain that it it would end in this way, that I could live from the whole art thing or from what I'm doing. So I'm really grateful for that and with our kid i mean to have a kid me means uh yeah you you need more you you have more responsibility for your income for safety for everything that she grows up in the best way you can offer you have to to take care that she can stand on her own feet one day and and she actually, both of us, we always say, uh, Julie teached us a lot of lessons. Like, she's a kid, she's really sensitive, but she likes to stay at home. Mm-hmm. She likes these, that she just hear our voices, like we read a lot of stories or tell or create stories with each other. She liked this if we are at home. Both of us, Stefan and me, <laughs> we were used really to go out a lot, a lot of activities. But Julie gave us a lesson with that. She said, no, I want to stay at home. One time I want to be an aunt, which is really nice mm-hmm. and really open, an open-minded person and a peaceful person and a great host. 
So I created Aunt Matilda as an opposite from my aunt. Mm-hmm. And now, for me, if, you, if it comes back to an import principle, it means even if there are persons in political, society, or family surroundment, maybe they're, you don't like them, <laughs> their opinions, or maybe they treat others, or whatever. You can make something out of it by producing the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so they created something really good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. That's and, really a great thing, isn't yeah. it, to have that. That's yeah. the one thing about using art in life, is that yeah. what I don't think everybody else knows, but you're observing people around you on the Strassenbahn yes. or in... in Even in, you. In, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. She's been observing me for years. Yeah. So. Well, it's been a pleasure, Isolde. You are one of my favorite people in the world. Du bist eine Schatzler. Thank so, you very much. Yes. It was a big honor to be um, a guest at the SNAP session. I, I'm really... And I, I don't know if somebody's interested about my stories, but if... I really love this. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Alles Gute. Thank you. Thanks to our artist of the show, German actress Isolde Fischer. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krauss. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. <laughs>